0: The evening of September 12th was a late one for the printing plant manager, but then that was normal on a Saturday night. The writers, the copy editors, and the layout specialists had all completed their work, and the September 13, 1970 edition of the Sunday New York Times was ready to begin its printing run.
1: On page 32 of the magazine, there was a 3,000-word op-ed, by an economist at the University of Chicago named Milton Friedman. Under the headline, the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits.
0: Unaware that he was about to mass produce the most influential business idea for decades to come, the plant manager started the run and the machinery whirred to life. It fed the newsprint through the ink rollers and on through its labyrinthine journey in the plant to be cut bundled and loaded onto delivery trucks and airplanes that would bring it to newsstands and front doors all over the world.
1: The next morning, the sun rose, the coffee was poured, and millions of people thumbed through the paper, pulled out the magazine, and read this.
0: Businessmen believe that they are defending free enterprise when they declaim that business is not concerned merely with profit, but also with promoting desirable social ends. That business has a social conscience and takes seriously its responsibilities for providing employment, eliminating discrimination, avoiding pollution, and whatever else may be the catchwords of the contemporary crop of reformers. In fact, they are or would be, if they or anyone else took them seriously, preaching pure and unadulterated socialism. Businessmen who talk this way are unwitting puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society these past decades.
1: Friedman continued to lay out a case for the complete separation of business activities and social responsibility. His central thesis is that business is a zero-sum game that any money spent on social causes is money taken out of the pockets of customers or employees or shareholders, and that it is downright unethical to spend other people's money in this way.
0: In his closing paragraph, he wrote the line that would become a dogmatic litmus test for anyone who wanted to be considered a serious business person. There is one and only one social responsibility of business. To use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it stays within the rules of the game. And
1: that idea has become the context for nearly every MBA program, Wall Street analyst, and senior corporate executive ever since. It has become the water in which business people swim. Whether they are aware of it or not, the Friedman paradigm is how business people are taught to see the world.
0: Green. Good. And then, in 2019, the Business Roundtable, a group of more than 100 CEOs of major American companies, released a shocking statement directly contradicting Friedman's idea and asserting that in their view, the purpose of business was no longer to maximize profits for shareholders. The new purpose of business is now to maximize value for stakeholders.
1: But what does that mean? Who is a stakeholder and what value are we supposed to be maximizing exactly? There are a lot of different organizations with different perspectives on that. But despite the lack of a clear definition, the term stakeholder capitalism seems to be catching on. And with it, a new paradigm of business, one very different from Mr. Friedman's view,
0: is emerging. And that is why we are here creating a 10-part podcast miniseries called 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism. In each episode, we're going to share a business story that just doesn't fit in Milton Friedman's zero-sum version of capitalism. These are stories of companies
1: that embrace social responsibility to an astounding degree, and yet create great value for their stakeholders and, in many cases, make more money for their shareholders than similar companies who are still using the Milton
0: Friedman playbook. My name is Nathan Havy,
1: And I'm Amanda Catherine Roman, and we'll be your co-hosts.
0: In this first episode, we are excited to bring you the story of an idea that's every bit as powerful as Milton Friedman's, that sprang from a question Mr. Friedman thought he had already answered. What is the right level of profit? for an organization. Where
1: Mr. Friedman's answer was clearly, as much as possible, Jay Jacob, who was tasked with answering the question for the Mars Corporation in 2007, discovered the first thing you should know about stakeholder capitalism.
2: The best candy on earth comes from... <whistles> wow. Mars Incorporated is an iconic food and beverage company that's got about $38 billion in revenue annually and employs 120,000 associates. I joined them at the start of 2007, and I was actually hired to work in the leadership of the internal think tank of Mars, which is a very unusual thing to have inside a corporation. It was created by the founder of Mars back in the 1960s to challenge orthodox business thinking. What's the right level of profit for the company? This right level of profit question was very fascinating because value chains of a corporation are really only as strong as the weakest link. And if you take more than is your right in terms of profit, you could create a squeezing effect among your value chain partners, one squeezing the other, squeezing the other. And this disequilibrium that would be created would be disadvantageous, but it would be invisible to you. What is the right amount to make sure that we don't have this disequilibrium that would disadvantage the company? So that work was given to us, and we came to realize very quickly that this was something that really was overdue. A new business model was needed to significantly evolve capitalism as it had been operating over the previous, you know, four to five decades. We looked at it as a very early 1.0 rudimentary version of capitalism, whereas there are other forms of capital, like social capital, human capital, or natural capital, that also have significant value and that are ignored by businesses that then operates suboptimally because they don't know how to measure, manage, and mobilize these non-financial forms of capital that could actually be even more valuable in some instances than money. And yet the business model that businesses still cling to is the one that keeps driving us into dysfunctional excess. So it's time to move beyond Friedman's model and actually create a more complete form of capitalism. I really didn't understand how we were going to be able to transform the business model of the company, much less present a model that actually could be the successor model to Friedman's financial capitalism. But I just felt drawn to it because I felt like this has to be done by someone. We really believed that financial capitalism was in dire straits and that the only sorts of alternatives that were being presented out there were somehow ideological in nature or political in nature. Communism wound up collapsing on the Berlin Wall in 1989. But there was something in place. There was another system, which was financial capitalism, which was already very mature and ready to receive those new states. Well, what do we have now? We have a system that could potentially collapse on another wall, the wall of Wall Street. What do we have to step into? If we didn't crack this one, companies would not be equipped when the next major economic crisis hit. And of course we had the one in 2008, which helped remove some of the skepticism and barriers to our work, but now we have the global pandemic that could be far worse. Can you expand the definition of performance for the firm to be inclusive of all core forms of capital? So social capital, in very simplistic terms, is about trust within a community. Human capital is really the methodology to arrive at what the true drivers of well-being are within your workforce. And then lastly, a natural capital. It's the environmental resource inputs that go into the manufacture of anything, from a bag of rice to an automobile to a Mars bar. We discovered in this early research work that there was a very strong correlation between growing the non-financial forms of capital and releasing greater economic performance. We realized that unlike sustainability or corporate social responsibility, where you would typically have to trade off profit to do some good for people and planet, that we didn't have to make any trade-offs. And actually, you could wind up having superior performance. The president of the Mars Wrigley business at the time took a look at what we were doing and said, OK, that's all theoretical for me as a business leader until I see it put into practice in a business. So why don't you go to East Africa, where we have the Wrigley factory outside of Nairobi, Kenya, work with the local team there and try to create a business around this and show me how it works. So with great excitement, we went to Nairobi, and I remember the general manager out there was very taken by what we were offering. But then he said, you know, I have very, very aggressive financial targets that I have to deliver, and so I can't afford to have you guys in places where you could damage my business in some way and cause me to miss my targets. And so we said, okay, well, where can we work where you're not working? And he took a look around and he said, well, how about working in these very impoverished slum areas? And we took a look at that, you know, we realized the largest slums in all of Africa are actually around Nairobi, and there was almost no visible financial capital there. There was almost no visible human capital, you know, well-being in the workplace. There was some social capital there. People that are very impoverished sometimes will look out for one another and we saw no natural capital. I can't think of more severe, difficult, uh, harsh conditions to set up an experimental business. If this could work, if we could prove that this works in this kind of difficult environment, then this is going to work anywhere. you couldn't work in these kinds of communities when you had no social capital yourself, why would they have trust for a Western multinational corporation? We realized that in these slum areas, The retailers aren't supermarkets. The retailers are little kiosks, uh, wooden kiosks, where they sell things that are in very dangerous and difficult places to get to inside these slums. So we really needed to recruit locals that were known to these retailers because those were the only people that they would buy from. So we went to an organization that was an NGO that was there to help unemployed single mothers get off the streets. That NGO was suffering from the, the problem of not being able to find enough job opportunity to lift these women up out of impoverishment. So we were offering a solution to their problem. They in turn were offering a solution to our problem, which was they were trusted. Similarly, we found a microfinance lender that was failing in helping provide microloans because there was no collateral. And we found a way to show them how they could collateralize the mere fact that they were in a job program that was sponsored by a Western multinational. These people were certified as microdistributors for our products, so the microfinance lender was perfectly happy to make a microloan based on that to people who could then purchase a bicycle with a basket that they could use to pedal out to a stock point, pick up chewing gum, bring it in, and start to sell it. In business, you know, you have something called KPIs, Key Performance Indicators, that are usually things like sales and retained earnings. And those are the incentives that managers have to deliver to get their bonuses. Well, we decided we didn't want to use those as the KPIs, that we wanted to use non-financial capitals human and social capital in particular. So managers would have to learn how to deliver you know, greater trust, social cohesiveness, capacity to work collectively, which is social capital. They would also have to deliver greater well-being and work for those people. And by doing that, they would be delivering their KPIs. So when we instituted that practice and we watched social and human capital go up, we started to see the business go nuts. The sales went up. The retention rates went up, and profitability doubled that of the neighboring business next door that was working with all the advantages of wealthier consumers. I don't want to leave you with the impression that it was really easy and, and it was all happy faces and balloons. You know, we had our ups and downs. And one of those was a time when we had been tracking for the business as social human capital, but also the sales and the retained earnings and the retention rate. And the indicators that had been going consistently upward suddenly started to drop precipitously. And the business didn't know why. And so the alarm bells went off and they came to us and said, you know, we don't know what's going on. I mean, could there be corruption in the value chain? Could there be some other breakdown? Why isn't this working? So we went in and did a diagnostic. Basically, someone new had come in into the business and decided that they were going to put sales targets on the micro entrepreneurs. You know, a very traditional type of thing. But you don't do that in this kind of a program. If you want to scale up a program and increase your sales, you just grow more micro distributors. But to compel them to deliver X amount of sales, these people are just going to walk from the program because that's not the way they operate. So we got the company to lift that requirement and suddenly everything went back to where it was. But you know, about 18 months later, we started to see the indicators drop again. But this time we went right to the business and tried to figure out, are you trying to impose a traditional shareholder maximization type of management practice? And sure enough, we, we discovered that there was a decision taken that in the baskets of goods that the micro distributors were allowed to sell, they now had to be exclusive to the company. And, you know, again, they're micro distributors in an impoverished situation and whatever they have to sell in that community so that they can survive, then that was fine with us. We didn't even mind if they sold competitor products. And so, again, we convinced the company that that was probably not the right approach. They lifted that requirement and then all the indicators went up again and we had green lights. It's a learning process. And there'll be more failures ahead, I'm sure.
0: The program delivered real results for the micro-distributors too. Their community watched as they earned enough money to start saving and then even investing. Some upgrading from a bicycle to a moped and then to a motorcycle. Some micro-distributors became entrepreneurs themselves, hiring their friends and equipping them with bicycles or motorcycles. Soon, the program had become a job to aspire to, achieving a 90% rate of retention among micro-distributors.
2: Well, after 13-plus years of working on this now, we're finding that the results are so promising and potentially transformational not only for Mars, but also for other companies in different sectors. We were able to convince the Mars family and leadership that actually economics of mutuality is what uh, you would call in business a non-rival good, meaning that if you share it, you actually get more benefit than you would if you were to create just intellectual property around it and try to keep it for yourself. So Mars has very generously decided to share the findings of economics of mutuality and has allowed the entire internal think tank to move external to the company into an independent, open, collaborative platform. We're teaching this in a number of leading universities, and we will be partnering with other companies in their business ecosystems and sharing the knowledge and learnings that come from that. The goal now is to create a global movement around economics and mutuality before it's too late. The purpose of business is not to create profit, as strange as that sounds. The purpose of business is to find profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet, not to profit by creating problems for people and planet. The rules have changed in the global economy. If you don't want to be suboptimal in the way you operate your business, you need to expand your definition of performance and include with financial capital, social, human, and natural capital. There are ways to measure these things with a high level of accuracy, but also with simplicity and uniformity. So you've got the tools and techniques at your fingertips Last year, I looked at some interesting statistics. The largest 100 economies of the world, 69 of them were corporations. Given all of the challenges and problems society and the environment now face, I mean, it's just unconscionable that corporate leaders wouldn't step up and play their role. And now, through economics and mutuality, we can show how being more responsible actually makes you more resilient, makes you more sustainable, and actually could even make you more profitable as you go forward. But if you're all about trying to extract value instead of co-create it, you're going to go down as we go forward.
0: There is a concept that describes the evolution of scientific thinking like this. First, there is a thesis that explains the way something works. And inevitably, people find examples that seem to contradict that thesis, so they develop the antithesis to that thesis. And for a while, both sides of that debate have at each other, and things can get pretty polarized. But eventually, an idea comes along that shows how the thesis and the antithesis are both essential elements of a larger truth, and that is called synthesis thesis,
1: antithesis, synthesis. It seems to us that Friedman's thesis that business ought to focus only on profit and the antithesis that business has a broader duty to society have been duking it out for decades. But the economics of mutuality shows us the way towards a synthesis in which profit maximization and social responsibility are not diametrically opposed goals but rather they can be combined to achieve dramatically better outcomes than either side can achieve
0: alone. The key distinction here is to make the advancement of social aims a core output of a profitable business model. For most companies, doing good is about writing checks to charities or engaging in other activities that are not core to the profitable execution of the business. This is what Friedman opposed. But If you expand the scope of what is counted as profit and loss on the balance sheet of a company, then a very different picture emerges. Not because you are, as Friedman put it, part of the contemporary crop of reformers, but because you can see, like Jay Jacob and his team, that the continued profitable operation of your company demands it.
2: This
1: is Stakeholder Capitalism. Between us, Nathan and I have decades of experience studying cases like the one you just heard and finding ways to help leaders learn these lessons and transform their operating models.
0: We do this because we both believe that shifting the paradigm of business is the single most critical priority our generation must accomplish. It's the key to finding workable solutions for climate change, discrimination, gross inequality, and a whole host of other wicked social problems. And while there's a lot of really inspirational opportunity here, there's also a great deal of urgency to make the transition.
1: We timed this first episode for release on September 13, 2020, the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's fateful New York Times Magazine
0: piece. And unlike the process that distributed Friedman's piece all over the world, there was no printing plant. Involved in the publication of this episode. No shipping trucks. No home delivery. And unfortunately, no millions of people listening to this with their morning coffee. At least, not yet.
1: If, as you are learning 10 things you should know about stakeholder capitalism, you think of other people who would also find value in these ideas, please help them find us.
0: There is another way... And it is up to us, we and you, dear listener, to use our time well so we can facilitate the transition to stakeholder capitalism. 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is a project of the Institute for Corporate Transformation.
1: This episode was edited by Nathan Church and produced by Heavy Pro Cinema.
0: The music you heard in this episode was from Onokan, Mr. Moo, and Joe Blankenberg. And if you liked it, you can find links to each of them in the episode one post at stakeholdercapitalism.biz.
1: 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is written and directed
0: by Nathan Havey. If you'd like to know more about the economics of mutuality and even have your company work with Jay and his team to find opportunities for mutuality in your business, You can go deeper at eom.org.
1: The journey continues in our next episode about a marketing professor's breakthrough discovery so provocative that no self-respecting business person would be seen reading it.
2: The guy immediately said, oh, I would never read that. He said, well, if I was sitting in an airplane holding a book with that title, I would be embarrassed if anybody I knew walked by.
0: We'll be back for episode two. To make sure you don't miss it, visit stakeholdercapitalism.biz where you'll find links to subscribe on a variety of podcast platforms and you can also find out more about the series.